Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12. I invite you to turn there in your Bible or follow along on the the screen behind me as we hear from Romans uh, 12, starting in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. But do not overcome Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. This is a good day. I mean, this is just about as good as it gets. We are uh, celebrating Reverend Kathy immediately following the service. I do hope you'll stick around. We won't keep you too long. You'll still be able to get a great lunch uh, because Kathy doesn't like a whole big production made, but we just couldn't let 50 years here at Dolphin Way go without pausing for a moment to celebrate her and all she means. So I hope you'll stick around. Just made my heart really glad all week long to be preparing for that. And then I get here, and how often do we get to have a wind section in our praise band? I mean, yeah. It's one thing, I mean, it's one thing to have an extra instrument or two, but we legitimately can say we had a wind section today in worship, uh, and what a glorious uh, way the, the whole band brought us into worship and, and centered our hearts in God. Uh, and then as I was walking up here, and then I just, I was looking down, I was preparing to move this heavy uh, pul- uh, pulpit stand as I, as I always do, and then I just looked up and I saw that stream of kids coming down that aisle and going there. I, you just can't, doesn't get much better. It is a good day. It's a good season, of course. It's the last Sunday today of, our, uh, of Advent as we are getting ready for Christmas and everything we've been waiting for. It's the last Sunday of the sermon series that we've been preaching on the four last things. All month long, we've been going through what are the oldest traditional themes of Advent. Uh, before, we talked about peace, hope, love, and joy, the themes of the Advent candle. For centuries, when Christians came into the season of Advent, uh, the traditional themes to talk about were death, and judgment, and heaven, and hell. And today is the last Sunday, which means it's the Sunday we set aside for talking about hell, which is kind of like waking up to find coal in your stocking. 
And we've got all these other wonderful things going on here. You are to praise God, to get your hearts ready for Christmas, to thank God for Kathy Jorgensen. Here the kids are with their exams over in school out, and they are looking for a break. And everybody here is here because you either need a moment's peace or because your heart is just so full, you've got to take a victory lap and praise God. And here I am compelled to speak on a theme uh, that uh, my own children would rather spell out because they think it's a bad word. Like, <laughs> Dad, you're preaching on H-E double hockey sticks this week? Now we can say it. There's no magic in the word. I have to admit, though, it all makes me feel a little bit like Ebenezer Scrooge this morning. And that's probably why when I read today's passage about burning coals on someone's head, I couldn't help remembering a passage from A Christmas Carol and a moment, uh, a scene with poor old Bob Cratchit. If you've ever seen A Christmas Carol, if you've seen the, uh, the, uh, the depiction of Bob Cratchit by one of our great actors, Kermit the Frog, you have the scene in mind. You remember this from A Christmas Carol. It begins early in the, the story of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, Bob Cratchit is, of course, the clerk at this accounting firm of Scrooge and Marley, and he's there in the front at the desk, and he is shivering. And this is how Charles Dickens described the scene in the original. He said, the clerk's fire was so much smaller that it looked like it was just one coal, but he couldn't replenish it because Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. And so the clerk put on his white comforter and he tried to warm himself at the candle. And I picture that scene with Bob Cratchit in my mind and it occurs to me that the very same gift can mean very different things to very different people. You know, when we talk about uh, finding coal in our stocking, that's an old saying, that's an old idea. I bet nobody here has ever received that as their sole Christmas gift. Even if you got it, it might have been more as a joke. But when we talk about that, we're usually referring to it as a kind of punishment, right? Like, this is how Santa is going to punish everybody on the naughty list. And it occurs to me that, you know, 150, 170 years ago for Bob Cratchit, uh, a stocking full of coal would have been a tremendous gift. It would have been a tremendous source of comfort to him and way to beat back the cold. And it was not only would it have been a tremendous gift for Bob Cratchit to receive, it was apparently so extravagant a, a gift that Ebenezer Scrooge himself couldn't manage to give it. A single lump of coal would have been a gift that was beyond anything that Bob Cratchit dared to ask for. And it was more than Ebenezer Scrooge would dare to give. And isn't that strange how the same gift can mean very different things to very different people? For us, it's a punishment. For Scrooge, it would have been an extravagance. For Bob Cratchit, it would have been life and security in that cold, cold office. Isn't it strange how one gift can mean different things to different people? It's almost as strange as the picture that we have in today's passage where the Apostle Paul paints for the Romans this image. He says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. And there's a lot in this passage that is strange. It is strange enough what Paul is asking us to do, even though it's kind of what we would expect. It's the exact same thing that that Jesus asked of his disciples, of whom Paul is now one. Jesus said that we should love our enemies, just like Paul is commanding the people of Rome to do here. 
But Paul says it's not enough in loving our enemies that we should just ignore them. I feel like that's kind of the common wisdom about what to do with enemies, what to do with haters, what to do with the people who get you down is just don't let them into your life, right? Kind of shake them off as the song goes, right? But Paul doesn't say that. His advice is not simply to just ignore them and get over it. It's not even enough for him to say um, that we should just vaguely wish them well. Have you ever had somebody say about somebody who might qualify as an enemy in their life, well, uh, of course I love them. As a Christian, I, I love my neighbor. It's not like I want anything bad to happen to them. In case you were wondering, that is not what it means to love somebody. Loving someone does not consist primarily of, well, I don't want anything bad to happen to them. Love does not mean, oh, well, I don't hate them or actively try to do them harm. Paul takes Jesus' command that we should love our enemies and he makes it specific. He says, feed them in their hunger. Give them something to drink when they are thirsty. Actively care for your enemies and proactively tend to their needs. And then Paul takes this even further by explaining that not only is that what we should do, but he says why we should do it. And he says, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. And that takes what is already strange to a whole nother level of oddness and strangeness. I expect, though, you've been there before. In a moment when somebody's gift to you felt like it burned. A moment when you've been in a position where you needed some help or you needed a gift or you were looking for an answer to everything you'd been waiting for. And when it came, it came in some form or some person that rubbed you entirely the wrong way. And you were almost like, I'd rather not have this than have it from you. <laughs> and isn't it strange how one good deed, how one answer to prayer, how one gift that we looked for and waited for and that we needed can mean different things to different people and when it comes from different people. A couple weeks ago, we spoke of God's glory and we said that the scriptures that most often describe the presence of God describe God's glory using two images, images of light and of heat. When we hear about God's glory, we tend to hear about light and heat. We hear about God leading the people of Israel in a pillar of fire. And in the transfiguration, we are told that Jesus shone so brightly that it blinded everyone who was there watching. And then we have in the book of Revelation a promise that tells us that in the new Jerusalem, when there is the new heaven and the new earth, we won't even need a sun anymore because God's presence will be at the center of it all and leave us in this perpetual day. It occurs to me that when the scriptures talk about God's glory, they most often talk about it in terms of the light it brings. But when the scriptures most often talk about hell, they also describe it in terms of fire. But we get none of the images of light, and we're left only with conversations about heat. And isn't it strange how the presence of God can be the one thing that we receive in different ways. You know, when I was growing up, I often heard that hell is the experience of the absence of God. 
Hell is what happens. It's the experience of, of God's remove, of God's, uh, of our separation from God, our removal from God's presence. And there's, there's a good reason for that. There's good background to that. Uh, the people who taught that, that, that hell is the absence of God, oftentimes they would appeal to something like Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus describes a day of judgment where God comes and sits on a throne of glory and stands before all the nations. And, and we're told in Matthew 25 that on that day that Jesus is describing all those who cared for the hungry and the thirsty and all those who visited prisons and sick beds and clothed those who were naked and gave to those who were in need and gave shelter to strangers, God would look at them and say to them, come and stay in my kingdom. And then to those who mostly ignored the hungry and the thirsty, to those who mostly avoided prisons and sick beds, to those who couldn't be bothered to provide or share clothing or shelter, God would say to them, depart from me into the eternal fire. That's the picture that we have in Matthew 25. And when you hear that account on its own, it's easy to come to a conclusion that when God says depart, that that's as essential to the experience as the fire that's the plain and obvious reading of that passage and of a few others, and that there will come a moment when, when God looks over everyone and God will have had enough and when time is up and God will say to some, all right, your shenanigans have no place in heaven, so you're just gonna have to be outside. Of course, Matthew 25 doesn't have the whole story. And if it did, we wouldn't need the cross, <laughs> And Matthew 25 is simply about what happens over what we have done with no mention of what Christ would go on to do for us. And the longer I follow Jesus and the more I've read my Bible, there are more, the more questions that have come up, the more I find that the Bible itself rebels against the idea that anything could be described as the absence of God. Instead, the image we have through all the scriptures is that God is the creator of all things, seen and unseen. That the absence of God is not a place or a thing, or anything. it's just simply nothingness, a void. God is the one we are told in the scriptures in whom we live and move and have our being. God is the one who made all things. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. There is nothing, no height or depth, no power or principality that exists apart from God. For God is the source of everything. And I could go on, I could go on for, for hours naming all the scriptures that make it very clear that existence itself, everything that is, is from God, comes from God. But suffice to say for now that biblical faith does not say that the absence of God is hell. A biblical faith says that the absence of God is nothing at all. It's emptiness. It is silence, absence, and a void. If you go on and read in your Bible, you'll find other challenges to this idea of the absence of God as well. You'll find in 1 Peter where where Peter tells us that God desires that all should be saved. In John 3, 17, we always love 3, 16. We always leave off 17, which is a shame because it's great too. 
That God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. And if 1 Timothy 4.10 is telling the truth when it says that God is the salvation of all and especially of those who believe. And if the very promise of Christmas is that in Christmas all the words of Isaiah were fulfilled and that in the birth of Jesus Christ we came to know that God is Emmanuel. That is God with us. Then how could God ever give up on any of us? without breaking God's own promise. It's not about whether you want a touchy-feely God. It's not about whether you want a nice God. It's a question of, does God keep God's promise? We worship a faithful God, a God who wants to keep every promise and who is sovereign enough that God can keep every promise. And if we are to be biblical in talking about hell, it's far more honest to say that hell is not God's rejection of us but rather in the words of C.S. Lewis to say that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Hell is when God loves us too much to abandon us and too much to break our free will. Hell is when God offers to show us the light, but we turn our backs so that all we can feel of God's presence is the heat. Hell is when we do to each other and to ourselves what we want because the goodness of God rubs us the wrong way. And sometimes, just like heaven, we get glimpses of hell on earth. When the angels came to announce Jesus' birth, there were some who responded with joy. They ran after the light. They followed it to the place where he was. The shepherds went singing in glory. There were magi in a foreign country who packed up all their things and followed a star till it brought them to this house in a backwater far from their homes. There was another guy named Herod who responded a little bit differently when he heard the news that there was a new king born in a little town called Bethlehem. When Herod heard that, All he could see was how this news might cost him. Might cost him his throne, his position, his power, his authority. Might cost him his ability to get what he wanted. Herod reacted very differently to the same gift that the shepherds knew and that the magi knew. And if you've never read the end of Matthew chapter two, all the way through, If you've never read about the horror of Herod's response, the one we call the massacre of the innocents, then I am sorry to have to be the one to tell you about it. Suffice to say that it is terrifying how the same gift can mean different things to different people. That's the thing about Christmas, isn't it? The gift doesn't change. The gift has not changed after all this time. And today, as we celebrate Christmas, 2,000 years after the first one, we come together knowing and waiting and anticipating that day, knowing that the promise is going to be kept and the gift will be given and God is with us. And we've only got six more days of waiting left. And when the day comes, you might or you might not get what you wanted for the occasion. You may or may not get the gift that you were looking for. You may or may not be with the people that you hoped for or you looked for. The gifts you give may or may not get the reaction you were looking for. 
Maybe you'll feel like someone uh, in your life, you, you never found the right gift and you're gonna feel like whatever you're giving them is, is basically a lump of coal and maybe they'll be overjoyed by it. And it'll mean something you could never have guessed and maybe you'll have think you have found the perfect gift for the most difficult person you know and maybe they'll react like you're putting burning coals on their head. There are so many variables every year in Christmas. So many intricacies for us to navigate. So many different ways that the same gift can be received by different people. For what it's worth, Christians have been talking about hell for longer than they've been talking about Christmas. And in all that time, after all this time, there are still plenty of questions and debates that have smoldered for centuries about whether and how to understand it, about whether it's a temporary experience or an everlasting one, whether Jesus descended the hell on the day before Easter. There are all kinds of variables and intricacies and all kinds of questions to consider. And if this was a lecture about hell and not a sermon about burning coals, I'd keep you here gladly for another two hours to take you all through it. But after all the questions had been answered and all the variables considered and all the scripture verses had been properly weighted, it would still come down to this. What does Jesus mean to you? What does the gift mean to you? Please don't misunderstand. I am not saying you get to remake Jesus in your image. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your opinion will not change who Jesus is or what he has done or what he is going to do. The gift is given and the promise is kept. He will never leave you or forsake you and the best of all, is God is still with us. And if, rather than a gift, you insist on seeking what you deserve, then I'm sorry to tell you that God will let you have it. If you insist on punishing yourself, the world will give you plenty of chances to do so. If you insist on ruling in hell rather than bowing in heaven, if you insist on getting everything you want, there's a halfway decent chance that one day you will. And if you insist on ruling in your own personal hell rather than bowing in heaven, God will not break your will. He loves you too much to break your will like that. And in all your running away, you will never outrun God. But every time you turn, he will still be there right at your back that you turn to him and the God who made you and who loves you and has come for you will always be right there and you will come to feel the heat of his presence even when you are afraid to look him in the face. But if you will allow yourself to turn and accept him as a gift, then his light will guide you home and his warmth will welcome you and you will discover that heat you were afraid of is the fire in the hearth saying, come home. When we sing of peace on earth and joy to the world and goodwill to neighbors and even love of enemies, you'll hear those songs. And when you hear that song from Mary that speaks about how the, the proud will be brought low and the lowly will be lifted up, you will hear that song. And rather than being afraid of that moment, rather than wondering what it will cost you to have peace on earth, or the proud brought low, or the lowly lifted up, or goodwill to all men. 
Rather than wondering what it will cost you, you will accept them as a gift that are given freely to you. And you'll open your heart to receive them with joy. And you'll see your neighbors differently. And even your enemies. And you won't resist even your enemies if they suddenly treat you with kindness. If there is good in their lives too, you'll rejoice that they too have had an encounter with Jesus. And if you can learn to accept what is given as gift rather than insisting on what you want and deserve, then you will continue to find the most divine gifts in the least likely places. Like a cold man or even a manger. I'd like to close this morning with a prayer from a pastor named Sam Wells. It's a prayer that I have come to, to pray often in my life. It's a marvelous prayer because Sam Wells, when he prays it, he, he reminds us that the way we think about heaven and hell focuses too little on Jesus. <laughs> that the proper way to think about all these things is to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, to trust him and not to settle for anything less. It's a prayer that I have prayed often and that I hope will become as precious to you as it is to me. Let us pray. Loving God, if I love you for what I hope to get out of heaven, then deny me heaven. If I love you for the fear of hell, then give me hell. But if I love you for yourself alone, then give me yourself alone and let me be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen.